I had to drop her off between 120 and 130. No, no, no. Oh, God, no. What, what was she wearing? I'm innocent. I'm Randy Page. Welcome to Flawed Justice, the Kimberly Long story. In this episode, we will experience what freedom felt like for Kimberly Long after seven years in prison. I forgot how quiet things can be. We'll learn about why she could be heading back to a prison cell. It's absolutely horrible to live each day, not knowing if this is gonna be the day that they come and take me back. And a prison inmate says he knows who killed Ozzy and why. Pete then pushed through the front door and grabbed for Ozzy, who said, I have a gun, and ran for the living room area. In episode one, I mentioned this story is more than your typical murder mystery. And I said that I think you'll find that ultimately, when it comes to sending someone to prison, sometimes the question of guilt or innocence doesn't really matter at all. In the next 30 minutes, you'll find out why. Episode 3, The Appeal. It was a moment Kimberly Long and her family say they believed would eventually come. I feel um, happy, elated, relieved. On June 10th, 2016, after seven years in prison, Judge Patrick Majors set Kimberly Long free. But even as she walked right into her parents' arms, she knew a dark cloud was hanging over her. Sure, Judge Majors removed her murder conviction, but the district attorney could choose to try her all over again. Or the DA could ask the State Court of Appeal to send her back to prison without a new trial. So she says she savored her freedom prayed it would last, and she planned her life around the next court date because she knew she could at any time be sent back to prison. I'm very optimistic and I ref refuse to see the glass as half empty. And I live each day as if it is my last, which I think everybody should live that way. So actually I live each day pretty good. Kimberly Long is an avid hiker. She can log 20 miles at a stretch without catching her breath, and she's found a special place where she can experience the kind of peace she could never find in prison. Prison is very noisy. It's a very noisy place. There's not one moment where there's an ounce of silence. I forgot how quiet things can be. That's why she comes here, to remember what silence sounds like. We'll just go around the other side. This is Joshua Tree National Park, a desert oasis within a few hours of Los Angeles, where the only sound is a passing car way out in the distance. And the open vistas stretch from one horizon to the other. I see God in nature, and that's all it is out there is just 
it's God's country. And I can go out there and I leave everything negative there. I leave it all out there on that trail. And I get all the positive vibes from what the desert has to give me. And I come back almost like a new person each time. A few months ago, Kimberly asked me to come along with her so she could show me this open stretch of desert that she loves so much. I watched her as she climbed up to the top of a huge pile of rocks, crossed her legs, sucked in a deep breath of the warm evening air, and stared out across the desert landscape. <sighs> so beautiful up here. At that moment when the sun was just beginning to set. You get in those back countries 20 miles in, there's nobody. Nobody but you and the Joshua trees. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's a very special place for me. And the opposite of a crowded, confining, noisy prison where years go by and her children grow up without her. Those are lonely moments in prison when you're, uh, you make that quick phone call and you go back to your cell and you just, you just stare. Um, it's sad, like you can't, I can't get that time back. You can't ever get that time back, like ever. And you know, I can't change it. I can't change the time that's, uh, that they took from me and from my family. But um, that's I think why I just make the best of each day, but I can't put it into words. I can't articulate my words like other people and like get you to feel how I'm feeling, but I'm a mom. So anybody else who's a mom, who misses out on that time, like they get it. They understand that one day is too long, but seven years and three months, that's, um, that's torture and it's wrong. Yeah, I missed too much. I missed way too much and I can't get it back. How has this affected your kids? You know, it's a struggle for them. They, uh, my son ignores it. My son ignores everything. He knows it's there, but he ignores it. My daughter's uh, much more um, vocal today. She you know, lives in another state. She's a juvenile correctional officer and married and she wants to know everything as soon as it happens. And uh, it's scary for her. We were just all happy that I made it to her wedding. After two years of freedom, on May 23, 2018, Kimberly Long got devastating news. It turns out the DA did appeal Judge Major's ruling that removed Kimberly's conviction and set her free. And on that morning in May, California's 4th District Court of Appeal restored her murder conviction. 5 PM. A woman's murder conviction was reversed and she could go back to prison. CBS the appellate court wrote, the matter is remanded to the trial court to address the issue of custody. Translation, now that she's a convicted murderer again, she needs to go back to prison. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible to live each day not knowing if this is going to be the day they take you. In the Court of Appeals ruling, three judges made it clear they were zeroing in on one specific question. Was Kimberly's original defense attorney, public defender Eric Keene, ineffective? The court did not rule on the evidence of innocence the jury never saw. 
evidence I brought to the jury's foreman, Stephen Roberge, 12 years after he found her guilty. As foreman of this jury, if you'd seen this evidence, what would have been your verdict? Uh, not guilty. No question. No question. Remember, members of the jury we spoke to said they convicted her based on the testimony of one man, Jeff Dills. Dills said he dropped Kimberly off at her house 45 minutes before she called 911, giving her enough time to beat her boyfriend to death, get rid of her bloody clothes and the murder weapon, and then call for help. So then you get home, what happens? What do you... I put my bike away, I go straight to bed, and I reach up and set my alarm, and I remember noting the time is 1.36. But that same star witness, Jeff Dills, also told police in a videotaped interview that he dropped her off in the same clothes she was wearing when police arrived at the scene of the murder. Clothes that had no blood on them. She was wearing blue jeans, kind of low rider blue jeans. And um, I think she had a black belt on. The jury never saw Jeff Dills' statement to police. Again, here's the jury's foreman. Why? do you think this is such a game changer for this case? Because it proves that she physically herself did not murder Ozzy. It's proof. But this proof of innocence the jury foreman's talking about wasn't examined by the appellate court as evidence she couldn't have committed the murder. Instead, the court decided to send her back to prison because the court ruled her original attorney, public defender Eric Keene, was effective enough to give her a fair trial. It's literally going into prison on a technicality. California Innocence Project Director Justin Brooks. People talk about getting off on a technicality. If Kimberly goes back to prison, it'll be going back to prison on a technicality. And they're not reversing it because they believe Kimberly to be guilty. They're looking to reverse it because they believe that her lawyer did a good enough job in presenting a case. And regardless of whether a lawyer did a good job or a bad job, if we later on find out we have an innocent person in prison, they should be released. It should be in the Constitution that an innocent person shouldn't be in prison. Maybe, but it's not, at least according to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has not ever explicitly held that it violates the Constitution to imprison somebody who's innocent or even to put somebody who's innocent to death. Wow. How can that be true? It doesn't violate the Constitution to put somebody who's innocent to death? How could that be? Well, Professor Erwin Chemerinsky, who's dean of UC Berkeley's law school and one of the nation's leading constitutional scholars, says the answer is simple. The U.S. Supreme Court got it wrong. The Constitution doesn't explicitly say that an innocent person shouldn't be imprisoned or put to death. But the Constitution does say that no person can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I think it's clearly a violation of due process to imprison a person if the person is innocent. I think it's a violation of due process to put a person to death if the person is factually innocent. That brings us to the question of why. Why did the appellate court reinstate Kimberly's conviction without ever ruling on the explosive evidence that convinced two jurors and a judge she's innocent? It all boils down to this. The Supreme Court says you do not have a constitutional right to claim you're actually innocent in order to be released from prison. But you do have a constitutional right to claim you didn't get a fair trial. 
That's why the appellate court ruled Kimberly's attorney was good enough to give her a fair trial, but didn't have anything to say about evidence that might have proven her innocence. So legally speaking, the question of guilt or innocence didn't matter at all. Again, here's Justin Brooks. Nowhere in the law does it say your conviction should be reversed because you're innocent. And there's more. Kimberly's attorneys also appealed her case to the federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which declined to rule on her case, saying it's up to California's courts to decide Kimberly's guilt or innocence. But one of the federal judges wrote, I have grave doubts about whether the state has convicted the right person in this case. These doubts stem from the fact that it would have been virtually impossible for the defendant to commit the crime. The federal judge went on to say that judges will sometimes encounter convictions that they believe to be mistaken, but they must nonetheless uphold. I think the judge is wrong here. Here's Professor Chemerinsky. This case is deeply disturbing because you have the trial judge expressing the belief that the person is innocent. You even have the federal court of appeals judge saying there's grave doubts about whether the person is guilty. And yet the courts are saying there's nothing they can do. That can't be right. It violates due process to put an innocent person in prison. Remember, in episode one, we learned there were two other potential suspects who were later ruled out by police. Kimberly's ex-husband, Joe Bugarski, and Ozzy's ex-longtime girlfriend, Cheyenne Lovejoy. Yeah, I so wish I could kill her. I told people I hate her. I hate her. She's trying to take my kid. What are Kimberly's thoughts? Let's go through it. Your ex-husband, Joe, is he capable of murder? I don't think he's capable of murder. He's not. I mean, he, he, he did some stupid stuff like, you know, with the whole Aussie thing and creeping around the house and all that, but he's not capable of, of killing anybody. That's not his deal. He doesn't even fight. How about Cheyenne? Cheyenne bothered me a lot. Kimberly says ever since Ozzy's murder, she's thought Cheyenne Lovejoy may have been capable of committing or arranging for the murder. But now she has second thoughts. At the end of the day, if it wasn't that one person I thought it was, then I've been wrongfully convicting that person this whole time. And that makes me upset. On the date of October 5th, 2003, She's upset because I've just read to her a new account of what may have happened on the night of the murder that doesn't involve Cheyenne, potentially new evidence that wasn't known at the time of her trial. This new theory came to light after Kimberly's attorneys at the Innocence Project got a letter from a convicted killer serving a life sentence inside a California prison who claims to know who killed Ozzy and why. I'm not going to name the inmate or the too many claims to have committed the murder because I'm concerned if I disclose his identity, it could put his life in danger as a prison snitch. Before we hear what he has to say, I should point out that attorneys at Innocence Projects all over the country get letters from prison inmates all the time. Here's Kimberly's attorney at the California Innocence Project, Alyssa Birkel. I decided to follow it up because in, in this case and in these innocence cases, we want to make sure that we don't leave any stone unturned. This was two 
odd uh, um, not to f follow up on because um, a couple things checked out. One, he, he seemed to have lived in the general area. I was able to do a little brief background check on it. And he did know a couple particulars about the case, like it involved um, bikers and whatnot that, um, that I, I thought maybe, maybe there's something there. So Alyssa and one of her law clerks went to the prison and spoke to the inmate face to face. He had pre-prepared a declaration and brought it to our meeting yeah. and essentially read his declaration to us while we were there. Here is the declaration, the whole thing, as read by one of our producers. I have changed the names of the men he identifies as the real killers. I do certify and declare as follows. On the date of October 5th, 2003, Kimberly Long and her alleged boyfriend, Ozzy, and their friend Jeff Dusty Dills had spent the day bar hopping and ended their day at a bar named Mavericks in the city of Corona, which on a regular basis was a frequent place where biker-type patrons socialized. On the evening hours of October 5, 2003, several other biker patrons were within Mavericks with Kim, Ozzy, and Jeff Dills. Jeff was good friends with a Maverick regular Pete and his friend Sam. Kim was paying a lot of attention to Jeff and his friends and was disregarding Ozzy's verbal statements. Ozzy disliked Kim's actions. At approximately 10.30 p.m. hours, Kim, Ozzy, and Jeff made the decision to leave Mavericks and head for Kim's residence, which at regular speed street limits took approximately 15 minutes to reach Kim's house for Mavericks. Soon after arriving at Kim's house, Ozzy started a verbal argument with Kim about showing too much affection for other patrons at Mavericks, which Kim denied. Kim stated to Ozzy that she was sick of his bullshit and she wanted him to get out of her house now, but Ozzy refused. So Kim made the decision to leave with Jeff on his Harley. After Kim arrived at Jeff's place, she repeatedly stated to Jeff she wanted Ozzy out of her house for good and that she was sick of his bullshit. Jeff stated to Kim that he liked her and wanted her to be his girlfriend. Thereafter, Kim agreed to get into Jeff's hot tub and they started making out, which thereafter Kim agreed to have sex with Jeff. Kim stated to Jeff, I hope that asshole is out of my house when you take me home. When Kim was busy using Jeff's bathroom, Jeff made a call to his friend Pete and asked if he would do a favor for him. Pete asked, what is that? Jeff said, you know that asshole Ozzy has been abusing Kim and he needed Pete to kick his ass and run him off Kim's property. Pete agreed, said he would go get Sam to go with him to Kim's place. Well, Jeff gave Pete Kim's address and asked him to go there now because Kim was at his place at the time. Thereafter, Pete and Sam left Mavericks on Pete's motorcycle and headed for Kim's place. They arrived at Kim's at 11.45. Pete and Sam rode double on Pete's Harley, but stopped first to obtain a small, solid oak axe handle from Sam's truck that was parked outside Mavericks' bar. After arriving at Kim's place, Pete parked his Harley across the street from Kim's house and Pete and Sam at that time headed for Kim's front door. Ozzy opened the door. Pete ordered Ozzy to come out. But Ozzy said to Pete, Fuck you. I'm going to call the police if you don't leave now. Pete then pushed through the front door and grabbed for Ozzy who said, I have a gun and ran for the living room area. But Pete at that time was hitting Ozzy in the head with the axe handle. Ozzy, after being hit several times, fell onto Kim's living room couch. Pete then realized Ozzy was knocked out and stopped hitting him, but him and Sam decided not to drag him out of the house because there was too much blood. They then left Kim's house and got rid of the axe handle, and Pete burned his clothes that had Ozzy's blood on them. Pete did not tell Jeff that everything went wrong and that he hit Ozzy in the head 
and left his body on Kim's couch. Jeff kept Kim over at his house in order to give Pete enough time to run Ozzy off. So when Jeff did not hear from Pete, he made the decision to take Kim home on his Harley at approximately 1.45 a.m., which at regular speeds only took approximately 15 minutes to reach Kim's house. Pete called Jeff the next day and informed him that Ozzy threatened to call the cops and threatened to get a gun, so he hit him in the head. Jeff then informed Pete that he heard Ozzy died from the beating and they should not associate any longer because Jeff might become a suspect. I do state under penalty of perjury that the foregoing information regarding the death of Oswaldo Ozzy Condi is true and correct. It's the most plausible explanation that I've heard in 15 years. Again, here's Kimberly Long. There's things that are in this letter that nobody knows. That was never put out in, in the public, on TV, in newspapers. There's two things that I can identify in there that nobody should have ever known. Kimberly says, like the inmate said, she was busy in Jeff Dill's bathroom changing her clothes, but she never told anyone about it because it's a detail she thought no one would care to know about. How did he know I was in the restroom changing? Why wasn't I just in his, in his room? Why was I in a closet? Why wasn't I in the living room? Why am I even changing my clothes? Why didn't I just jump in? How does he know that I'm actually in the restroom changing my clothes? And number two, how does he know I have a gun? Nobody knows I have a gun besides my family. Pete then pushed through the front door and grabbed for Ozzy, who said, I have a gun and ran for the living room. According to police interviews that were not made public, Kim and Ozzy kept a loaded shotgun in their bedroom. Here's Detective Dan Bloomfield questioning Kimberly on the day of the murder. Okay. Do you have any guns? Yes, I have a shotgun. Where's your shotgun at? Up in my closet. In your closet? Yeah. Whereabouts in your closet? Uh, right there. Okay. It's right there. You know what? The shotgun disappeared from their house on the night of the murder, and there's been no explanation about what happened to it. Kimberly says there are other parts of the inmate's account that ring true, like this. Jeff kept Kim over at his house in order to give Pete enough time to run Ozzy off. Jeff didn't want to take me home that night. He did not want to take me home, and he actually laid back and fell asleep. He started snoring, and I wanted to go home. So it makes sense that he was trying to stall. He kept telling me just to stay there, just to stay there, and I did not want to be there anymore. Also, she says the description of the murder is consistent with the layout of her living room. But Pete at that time was hitting Ozzy in the head with the axe handle. Now, Ozzy, after being hit several times, fell onto Kim's living room couch. This whole thing makes sense. He would have turned, did a 180, and ran straight back, but didn't get very far because the love seat is right there on the left-hand side, which he could have fell over. And what bothers me is that there's a blood stain on the arm of the couch on the left side, and nobody could ever explain how that got there because Ozzy's injury was on the right side. So this makes perfect sense on what happened that night. So you could imagine logistically, if Ozzy was running to try to get the gun and the guy behind him was hitting him in the head, that he could have fallen on that love seat exactly where he was found. That's definitely a possibility. I mean, you can't rule that out because it's just so simple. I showed the inmate's declaration to two of the jurors who convicted Kimberly. 
The jury's foreman, Stephen Roberge, said he thinks the inmate's story just does not add up. I think it's bullshit. First of all, if, uh, what I do remember clearly was Ozzy was sitting on the couch watching TV. He was not in a fight with anybody. Mm -hmm. He was hit from behind. He, there was nothing wrong with the front of his face. He was not, there was no defensive, uh, you know, he was hit from behind. You know, uh, in my mind, that, that story has no, that sounds like a pretty interesting story, but, you know, everything has some partial truths to it. Yeah. And I, that might be a scenario, but uh, I still feel uh, that he was hit once or twice in the back. There was no fight for sure. But the other juror who agreed to speak to me, retired arson investigator Arnie White, said the inmate's story makes a lot of sense. I would believe that story. Would you? Uh, well, I mean, it fits the, a lot of the crime scene evidence that I saw. That's a more plausible story than Kim magically didn't have blood all over her. Arnie White is calling on the police and the district attorney to investigate. I would like to believe that the prosecutor, the police department, the court, would say this is important information. It shuffles well into the deck of cards that we have and completes a picture that we are searching to, to have. This is, this is a story, it's another story. So we have the prosecutor's story, we have the defense story, which is very incomplete. And now we have a story that fills in some of the details. It might be worth our effort to find out where these details came from. I must say I agree with them. So I took a copy of the inmate's declaration, names and all. Detective Fountain, nice to see you. So here's what I want to give you. To the Corona Police Department. I'll pass it on to uh, our detectives. Did you already give it to the DA's office? Heading over there next. Next stop, the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. Randy Page, reporter with CBS in Los Angeles. I wanted to give this to you. Okay. Um, it's from a guy in, uh, I'm not going to name the prison, but one of the prisons here in California. Okay. Um, and he details what he says he learned happened in this case while inside prison. He says the, the, some of the bikers there uh, were talking about what happened. And he gives an account that has a lot of details in it. Um, what, what I found is there are a couple of things in this that have never been reported publicly before as far as I can tell. Okay. And just want to make sure you have it so you can investigate it. Okay. We'll definitely look into it. In late August of this year, the California Supreme Court dropped a legal bombshell. The state's highest court put a hold on the appellate court's decision to reinstate Kimberly's conviction. And the state's highest court announced it will issue a ruling of its own. It is a relief. Um, it just makes me feel that this court believes in me. I heard it could take uh, up to two years, and recently I heard it could be even longer, but I don't think um, it'll take them that long. Yeah, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. A court date has been set for November to decide, among other things, whether Kimberly will have to go back to prison until the California Supreme Court weighs in. Again, here's the Dean of UC Berkeley's Law School, Professor Erwin Chemerinsky. It's so crucial in light of the California Supreme Court decision that she be left out of custody while the matter is pending. It would be an egregious miscarriage of justice to put her in prison while the matter is being heard. For now, Kimberly Long is living with her parents, 
the former emergency room nurse lost her license when she was convicted. My nursing career is over. It's over. I've, um, I think I've just given up on the fact that I'll ever be a nurse again, and that's okay. You know, I believe that I have other things that are happening in my life today, and that's what I'm switching. I'm switching gears, and that's what I'm doing. She's switching gears from nursing to dog grooming. I'm working with animals now, and I'm just really happy with that. I'm kind of done working with people. They don't argue as much. No, they don't. No, and they're very sweet. They're very sweet, and they, uh, yeah, they, they're very trusting, and they just want you to love them. So I, uh, I'm kind of happy with where I'm at right now. I'm okay. Can you go see your daughter out of state? Can you do things that you want to do with your life at this point? No. No, I've been restricted to Riverside County for, what was it? Since 2003, I couldn't leave Riverside County. And when I came home, it was the same way in 2016. And now I can go to the seven southern counties, which is nothing. So I'm definitely restricted from doing almost anything it feels like. I really need my freedom back. I want to be able to go see my daughter. She moved two states away and I need to be able to do that. I have family in different states. I have friends way up the coast and I'm just stuck. Stuck in legal limbo with a murder conviction that is on hold but not removed and a state Supreme Court that could take another couple of years before issuing a ruling that could send her back to prison or give the DA a chance to try her all over again. You know, it's like having a cancer, if the cancer is coming back or if I'm gonna stay in remission, that's what I'm waiting for. As for Ozzy's family? They're the real victims here. They're definitely the victims here. But really how sad for Ozzy's family that they have to keep going through this all these years. It's a shame. And how about justice for Ozzy? Justice for Ozzy, he's been forgotten throughout this whole thing. He's been forgotten. I've been fighting to, to say I'm innocent and maintain my innocence this whole time and to get out of prison and try to get on with my life and the focus is on me and wrongful convictions. What about him? He was the one that was murdered. And everybody has forgotten that. You think it's time that we remember him? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I don't want to think about it. That's really hard. Coming up on our next episode, the foreman of the jury that convicted her says he's sure Kimberly didn't kill Ozzy, but he says he has a feeling she was somehow involved. When I looked at her and she looked at me and went, she's not clean on this deal. There's just no way. The experts weigh in. The detective who solved the infamous Night Stalker case. What bothers you the most about this case? The lack of evidence. A prominent criminal defense attorney. What should we learn from this case? Well, I think we should learn that this can truly happen to anybody, and our system is flawed, and it makes mistakes. And a man who saw all of the evidence and testimony in this case, one of the jurors who convicted her. I like to believe that our justice system is actually a search for the truth. And now that the California Supreme Court has taken over, what does it all mean for Kimberly Long? Is Governor Jerry Brown her last hope? What would you say as one of the 12 jurors who convicted her, what would you tell the governor today? 
You ever pardon? Flawed Justice is produced by Randy Page and edited by Richard Alvarez, associate producer B.J. Dahl. If you haven't done so already, be sure and subscribe to this podcast. When we release new episodes, you'll be the first to know. And if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. If you have any information on this case, I would love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me directly through our website, flawedjustice.com. Also on the website, you can watch the interviews and police interrogations, look at crime scene photos, and you can see television news stories I produced on the Kimberly Long case, and much more. We will also have links you can go to if you'd like to get involved, either to support Kimberly or the police and prosecutors, or just stop by and share your thoughts. We would love to hear from you. Again, that's flawedjustice.com. If you would like to learn more about Kimberly Long's case and other Innocence Project cases, you can go to the California Innocence Project's website, and it's easy to remember, californiainnocenceproject.org. Original theme and music composed and performed by Randy Page, with additional contributions by Megatrax. Special thanks to the folks at CBS in Los Angeles, including President and General Manager Steve Malden, Vice President and News Director Tara Feinstone, Director of Digital Content B.J. Dahl, Assistant News Director Jennifer Pierce, Managing Editor Paul Button, and Producer Jerry Constant. Flawed Justice is a production of CBS Los Angeles and KCBS-TV. Thanks for listening.